Welcome back to Powered by Play. This time we're going to be discussing misbehaving, rebellion, and the carnivalesque in the context of play. We'll be discussing topics such as invisible theater, street protest, reasons that we misbehave, Halloween, Rocky Horror Show, drag shows, and rebellion that crosses the line. This is Avery and Drew. All right, Drew, press play. Thank you, Avery. Let's get started. I think since we're talking about the carnival-esque, we should probably define carnival or carnival. So we're going to go back a little way to Bakhtin, Mikhail Bakhtin, and what Bakhtin wrote about the celebration of carnival. And then we'll look at carnival-esque versus carnival a little bit too. So I have a great quote here. Carnival is past millennia's way of sensing the world as one great communal performance. This sense of the world liberating one from fear, bringing the world maximally close to a person, and bringing one person maximally close to another, everything is drawn into the zone of free, familiar contact, with its joy at change and its joyful relativity, is opposed to that one-sided and gloomy official seriousness, which is dogmatic and hostile to evolution and change, which seeks to absolutize a given condition of existence or a given social order. From precisely that sort of seriousness did the carnival sense of the world liberate man. But there is not a grain of nihilism in it, nor a grain of empty frivolity or vulgar bohemian individualism. So how about that quote, huh? Bakhtin talked about to see or perform something as carnival-esque means to adopt the breakdown of rules and order that exists within carnival. In addition to freedom and the upset of power hierarchies, there are some new misalliances that Bakhtin talks about. So meetings where the sacred greets the profane, the rich greet the poor, the beautiful meet the grotesque, the new greet the old, and on and on and on. So it's a really interesting intersection of these things that don't meet each other very often. And Within that meeting, there's also a recognition of each other and maybe a little bit of trying on. So carnival or carnival was the specific ritual. And then the carnival-esque is, oh, look at these things from carnival that exist in other kind of places. Right. We're not just talking about the carnival in a typical American town where you can win stuffed animals and go on rides and eat corn dogs. For sure. That is a carnival. However, the carnival that you and Bakhtin are referring to is a concept of play. Yeah, and it still exists in the Caribbean. It still exists in parts of Europe and notably in Latin American countries. So carnival is still very, very much a thing. And we'll talk a little bit more about it as we go along and we'll talk about how carnival brackets things off and maybe the carnival-esque lets things bleed forward a little bit. One of the things that we're talking about is play as political or socially minded misbehavior. 
Here are things like in the 1960s, the peaceful protest or nonviolent resistance or civil disobedience movements, rebellion in the streets, Black Lives Matter, the Women's March, and I have a quote here from Henry David Thoreau, who I, I still love Thoreau. Sometimes I think Thoreau gets forgotten about a little bit, but he had so much to say, and his ideas have influenced people around the world and continue to. One of his more famous quotes, it's a simple quote, but I think it's super deep, and that is, disobedience is the true foundation of liberty. In other words, you are not free unless you misbehave. And so the question becomes, how does play fit into that? And how do you know when to misbehave? What happens when you misbehave? All kinds of things like that. And our own country, of course, was born out of rebellion. And I wonder, how does rebellion work today or misbehavior? Avery, this always makes me think of Firefly and I aim to misbehave. Mm -hmm. The brown coats. I love the brown coats still. So how does this how does this rebellion work today? Is it public? Is it private? I when I traveled to um, Sarajevo, the city of Sarajevo, during the civil war there after the breakup of Yugoslavia, there were folks who were talking to me about ways that they tried to keep the community together and keep any kind of light in the darkness. And some of their stories were about literally while snipers were targeting people in the city, they would, the, the folks who were in Sarajevo would go into basements and they would play games, they would dance, they would play music because the basements of course were sheltered from where the bullets were falling. So they, they had to, they had to do this to keep themselves in any kind of sense of our community will survive, must survive, and this is how we survive. And a lot of it was playful. I know you're going to look at uh, Augusto Bowal in just a second. And so Bowal's rehearsal for the revolution or playing toward community and social understanding or social change this is a way that we can get drama or theater specifically involved. I know you want to talk about invisible theater. Yes, I was reminded, though, when you were talking about how the country uh, is born out of rebellion. It reminds me of the Boston Tea Party and Rosa Parks sitting on that one bus. Yeah. However, those events were not just one day. Oh, we're just going to... Let's just... Let's dump the tea in the harbor. Or Rosa Parks just being like, oh, you know what? I'm done. I feel like this is it. And then everything changed after that. Instead, rebellion and revolution is such a long-term, long-lasting, determined process that there's no real change if you only do something once. Um, Rosa Parks was a long-term, lifelong advocate for racial equity as well as her you know other community of activists as well 
I, I don't I did not even research the Boston Tea Party for this episode, but I just thought about it and I don't know much else about it, but I am sure that those people were not just like, I'm really angry today. We're we're gonna dump stuff and show them who's boss and maybe something will happen. They had a goal, they had a plan, they thought it through, they had intentions of rebelling against authorities against their who they thought were their oppressors and it, i'm sure it was a long-lasting sustained effort amongst all of them and i think avery maybe what's more important nowadays than what actually happened during the boston tea party is the story that we tell ourselves about the boston tea party that there were patriots and remember they dressed up as indians so that they wouldn't get caught. They dressed up as Indians, Indians in quotes, and threw the boxes of tea off of the ships. I didn't know and, that. Yeah, and it was sort of one of the defining acts of we, because England is far away, this is something we can do on our own soil, was the general idea. And... Absolutely, that story kind of echoes. It gives us memories of what we are, what we were capable of as scrappy colonists, and also, I suppose, what we're still capable of as a small group of individuals. And I think when you really go down to the individual, that is where you do see invisible theater. So Augusto Goal, basically invisible theater is actors taking action in a space where other people can see and they're aware of this event, but they're not necessarily aware that this is a scripted or a planned play event. So it kind of blurs the lines between a playful game and reality. Modern young ones might know this term as social experiments or pranks that you see a lot on YouTube and all the social medias and such. Some of the ones that come to mind are where somebody bullies another person in public and they record the public's reaction. They bully a person right next to another stranger and see what the stranger does. There's also one I saw recently from Adam Sala where he pulled off his another woman's hijab in New York City. And, you know, this Adam and his friend, they collaborated to agree to these terms of quote-unquote playing this game, of pulling this invisible theater, this social experiment. He would uh, basically harass her. He would pull off her hijab, and the camera would record the truth of how people would react. And it wasn't always great. People would ignore, people would continue to harass her, they would join in on harassing, or sometimes uh, there was this one guy who was on the phone while he was witnessing this, and he... He simultaneously maintained his phone call while beating up the pretend harasser, and it was satisfying to watch, to be honest, because we want to see people respond that way, because I'm sure there are people out there who are like, yeah, this is so fun to watch a person being harassed. Uh, but maybe also because it's not necessarily real, maybe that's why it's also fun, and there's something, uh, there's something really hooking about it. They're hooking? A, sure. 
appealing. <laughs> There's something that really grabs uh, grabs our attention in terms of this invisible fear. And I've also seen others where usually a man is harassing another woman in an elevator too. And so the camera, I don't know how they set up a camera in an elevator and no one sees it because elevators are just four walls. I don't know. But, or maybe there's a security camera, I don't know. But harassing another woman in an elevator, a closed space where other strangers have to come in. The strangers are isolated and they're in a relatively controlled environment where the actors of this play prompt get to play out their scene and see how the stranger reacts. And in turn, these strangers become spect actors, as Boal would say, so they're not necessarily just actors because they are not in on the, the plot, they're not in on the game, um, but they're also not just spectators because they have to respond in this game. It's really complicated the way that I'm describing it, honestly, but it's fascinating. This concept of the spect actor combines action and audience, and to bring this invisible theater to random people in random communities is a way for the camera to capture some essence of truth. Almost like a documentary, perhaps. Absolutely. I think one of the things that Boal is accused of is perhaps an ethical gap. Is it ethical to essentially set something up as the truth? Boal would say you never tell the audience, the spectators, that this was actually an experiment. And he started this in the 60s or 70s, and what he wanted was to have this be relatively pure, and for the spect actors to eventually realize, that made me uncomfortable. I didn't know that kind of thing could happen in real life. Wow, that was real life on the street, and I did X or I didn't do X. I think with modern-day social experiments, correct me if I'm wrong, Avery, but normally the spect actors are told at some point this was an experiment. Yes, that is usually what happens, especially if a spect actor is suddenly violent to one of the performers. The quickest way to dissolve the aggression is to say, whoa, there's a camera, I'm not playing anymore, this is, I'm, I'm stepping out of character now. I'm not an actual harasser person. You can see the camera over there, you're on video, there's no need to continue to be aggressive to me. Yeah, I don't know how I would feel about not telling a public person that something potentially traumatic or dangerous that you witnessed was not real. Nowadays, it's definitely in the culture to be upfront about what a play performance is and what is not. It's just kind of common courtesy now, but it must have changed somehow between the time that Boal thought this up and now. Yeah, I think his idea was if you tell people, oh, this was fake, wasn't that interesting what just happened, people would kind of go, oh, and clap, and oh, you pulled that off so well. I'm so glad that nothing like that invisible theater piece actually happens in real life. And I think that's what Boal was trying to say, but there are 
I, I think that people are going to argue about this for as long as theater is around, Avery. What, how much, how much do we owe the spectators? How much do we owe the audience about what is real, what is not real? How much do they understand about the violence or the sexuality, perhaps, on stage or the relationships between the characters? When you walk into a theater, a formal theater, you pretty much have this contract of, I'm going to buy into, I'm going to willingly suspend my disbelief. That's the phrase that we use, because I know that nothing is hurtful, really. I can't be hurt by anything that I'm seeing. I know that the actors aren't really hurt. Romeo and Juliet don't really die. The actors are going to get up at the end, and we're going to applaud them. And so there's this agreement, there's this bargain that lets everybody feel safe. Whereas invisible theater, as you just pointed out, I mean, the actors may not be safe. The spectators may not be, the spectators may not be safe. It's an interesting dynamic. That reminds me of this moment during the drag show that I saw this weekend in Portland, yeah. which we will definitely get to very soon. But I just have to mention Joe, this one audience member. He was very, very drunk. Many of the audience members were very drunk, in fact. And this man, he, the second that the first performer was, you know, uh, Poison Water is the first opening uh, performer. She was just like saying hi, like asking people where they're from and greeting the audience, kind of um, not necessarily in a performance persona, just kind of like performing as themselves. And she, and then Joe, this guy, he's like standing up. He's really excited to be there. It's his first drag show or something. He's very excited to be there. And he stands up and he interacts with Poison Waters and talking about where he's from and his weird outfit. And he he walks closer to the stage and and they continue like talking and she's making fun of him a lot and everybody's eating it up and he steps onto the stage he because there's stairs up and down this this stage at a drag uh, venue and he gets onto the stage and he's just trying to get closer to her just trying to keep talking and stuff and uh, this is actually my first drag show as well that I am in the audience for. I wasn't sure if this was part of the act or not. I was so confused. I was sitting in my chair and I saw the security guard start to walk up and kind of be ready to drag Joe off the stage in a second. And I was so confused because I couldn't tell if this was, this was a skit or not. And so I was just kind of frozen and I didn't know if I could relax into that or not. I didn't know if I could enjoy what was happening because I was uncomfortable and my group was also uncomfortable. We were concerned for the safety of the actress and we were concerned about what was going to happen next and thank goodness that the security guard eventually grabbed his arm and pulled him off stage. Yeah. I'm sorry, Joe, you are not part of the show. Yeah, but yeah. I... He, he was, and we'll talk about that later. Nice. I guess also we should talk a little bit about why we would misbehave, why we would rebel, why we would do something that is engaged in carnivalesque. We sort of hit on one reason, which is to push back against authority, e.g. the Boston Tea Party. 
And we are generally not supposed to misbehave. We are supposed to stay in our lane. We are supposed to abide by the various social contracts that we have around us in society so that everybody knows what to expect. And I think that there are small ways that people misbehave which are almost accepted even though they are breaking the rules. Things like TPing someone's house, things like street art, or taking on new identities if you go clubbing, or if you engage in cosplay, going to a horror night, or a maze, or a Halloween house. We understand that normally we would not go and see visions of people attacking each other, or walk into something that looks like the set of a horror film. But if it's during the Halloween season, that's totally okay. It's almost like a new social contract. Or playing a game like Arkham Horror, where we are misbehaving because we are looking for these demons or scary creatures that we're going to attack, and we're going to learn magic rituals and spells in order to help save the world and things like that. I don't know. I think... We got resisting authority, and then I think there's also claiming space. If you're going to create a street art mural, you're claiming a little bit of space. If you are, uh, if you are going clubbing and you put on a new outfit that's kind of like, look, this is the me that I want to be in the space of the club. I want to elevate myself a little bit by what I put on and makeup or jewelry or whatever or some interesting kind of uh, accessory. A new hat, perhaps. I love, when I get a new hat, I love wearing that new hat and seeing what the responses are. So I'll totally cop to that. And also building community. If you are together in a horror maze and you are with your friends and your friends are sort of the plucky young party that is going through and is going to deal whatever that maze is going to throw at you, I think that's a, a great sense of building community. So there are various reasons that misbehaving makes sense. Definitely with claiming space as well as claiming identity too. Oh yeah. You are... And the word claim is very interesting because you're taking something as your own, but not necessarily it being your own already. And it also reminds me of just chasing stimulation as well. And even during middle school computer class, too. There, oh my goodness, I just had a very vivid memory of this one dinosaur shooting game. But not shooting dinosaurs. You are a dinosaur and you shoot other dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> but nice. oh my goodness that was a throwback um yeah during middle school we had i had my typing electrics electronics class and i don't know how the teacher didn't notice that me and my friends would play this dinosaur game sometimes or whenever they weren't looking and the alt tab is a wonderful tool in modern day society 
uh, during modern day lectures. I mean, you're a professor, you've probably seen it all. I remember once there was a student in your class playing on a Nintendo Switch behind their laptop screen. They had the screen, they had, you know, the Nintendo Switch, you can detach the controllers from the screen, right? And so they had their little tablet sitting on their laptop, like their laptop was a stand. And then under the desk, in their lap, they were having the controllers. Oh no! Did I catch this person, or was I totally into the lecture? You were, yeah, okay. you were into lecture. Sometimes you, sometimes you, and also some other of the theater professors too. They do that thing where you're lecturing, but you walk around to the back of the class, and that's usually when yes. people scramble and do the alt tab and switch the tabs to their notes and actually pretend to focus again. But honestly, combating boredom is a huge reason that we misbehave it's so simple and boring to think that boredom is a reason that we do so many things but if you think about it in terms of stimulation when we are in situations where we know what's going to happen or we feel repressed we don't feel like we have any agency we psychologically don't feel those sparks in our brain of this is a great thing to be doing right now. And so chasing the interesting thing to be doing is sometimes a very normal, simple reason, especially from childhood. I don't think that there have there has been ever a child who was bored and then did not misbehave or seeking attention that's actually a huge part of certain aspects of attachment theory is that acting out in response to wanting attention is a lifelong thing that some people do choosing joy and fun and hanging out with your friends past your curfew and sneaking back home that's a way to combat boredom but also so again, to claim your identity, I'm not just a good kid. I'm not just some munchkin who follows my parents' orders. I'm, I'm fun. I am having fun. I am enjoying my life. I am doing what I have to be doing. It's kind of a calling, this a rejection of restrictions. And I think this is going to connect to Rocky Horror in just a little bit when we get to that too. I, I think it's worth looking at when these acts of rebellion are bracketed off and when they are allowed to continue. We started this episode talking about carnival or carnival, and which derives from a whole bunch of different things. The medieval Feast of Fools, as memorably displayed in Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, where the high become low, the low become high for a day, the church sanctions misbehavior for a day, but then basically says, you have to get back in your lane. I gave you a day where you could do this, and now I expect you to behave as we have taught you to behave. Mardi Gras, very similar. Going wild before you have to enter Lent. I mean, that's, that's where Mardi Gras started. Fat Tuesday, right before Ash Wednesday. And I think it's grown into a ginormous party, but it's still very, it's still, its roots are in here's your space, but then come back. Or talk like a pirate day. 
I all right, Avery. I have to. Arr! If you're gonna start talking like a pirate, we'll make sure that you only do it for a day, and then come back and talk like a normal person. For heaven's sake, why would you be allowed to continue doing that past the day that we've set aside for yeah? And so, Halloween, I must tell you, you cannot see Avery clapping, but Avery is clapping. Uh, that was the most amazing moment of my entire very short morning so far. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Halloween. Halloween is like this, too. You get one night before All Saints Day where everybody has to come back to the church. So All Hallows Eve and pushing back against the scary things that were there before you celebrated all the saints all together. Masks tend to come out in these carnival situations, the cover of night, and these sorts of carnival experiences reassert the order afterwards and they allow for small power shifts but not huge power shifts so some things are contained but we can also ask about what is not contained what is allowed to bleed into life that continues have you ever had that one moment during elementary school where you or somebody else raise your hand during class to ask to go to the bathroom and then the teacher says we just had recess why didn't you go then oh man and that's exactly what this is reminding me of because society gives us recess they give us 15 minutes to go play and do what we want but of course, we're elementary school kids. We're not going to do what we need to do. We're not going to drink water and empty our bladders and take a snack. No, no, no. We're going to run around on the playground. We're going to talk to our friends. We're going to visit other people because we only have 15 minutes. We got it. It's, it's short. We got to do what we have to do. And then, and suddenly the bell rings and then we have to go back inside and you did not pee and now you have to pee. And that's not your fault. You're just a kid. But at the same time, the teacher says it's your fault. Absolutely. And here's a funny thing also. My first year students, I see this every year. They are so used to asking permission to leave to get a drink of water or leave to go use the bathroom that they will raise their hands. And I inevitably call on the student and they'll say, can I use the bathroom? And I'll say, of course you're in university now you're in college now if you need to step out and take care of your body that's totally fine just go out quietly and come back in quietly that's all you need to do yep however there are also students who use bathroom breaks to misbehave because oh yeah yeah you're right there absolutely are i don't know what they do when they ask to go get a drink of water or use the bathroom but i i exactly i hope they're telling me the truth Avery, what do you think the difference is between misbehavior versus true rebellion or true play towards social change? My answer to this question in a very complicated way, sure, like I said, like we discussed earlier of Rosa Parks and sitting on a bus one time, that's technically misbehaving because that's against the rules sitting at the front of the bus once but collaborating with fellow activists in your community rallying others behind your same cause connecting with others who 
are also feeling repercussions of oppression, challenging authorities in the pure act of you forming a community with your own group, that in itself is what revolution actually is about. It's not the sitting at the front of the bus one time. It's the sitting at the front of the bus 20 times, 50 times, and also communing, communicating about it afterwards and strategizing and continuing to put your foot forward when it comes to working together with other people for a same cause. There is community in radical rebellion, and that's exactly what rebellion needs in order to be systemic change. And I think the idea of rallying community and finding a way to address a wrong is very much in Hades Town too. And I know you love this musical. I love this musical too. I think Hades Town is fantastic. When Orpheus goes into the underworld, goes into Hades Town to go and get Eurydice, there's a lot that he's doing. He's also trying to fix what is broken with Hades and Persephone. I think an interesting thing to talk about might be like Persephone's rebellion versus Orpheus's rebellion. So Persephone always has to come back just like Carnival has a beginning point and an end point, but Orpheus is going to try and do a spark of something that will continue. There's that one quote of, if no one takes too much, there will always be enough. In such a broken world, they're getting the underworld souls to question Hades' authority. He's creating a, re a resounding rallying cry against a whole system. And it's such a powerful representation of what it takes to really challenge a whole system. Yeah, absolutely. The world that they dream about is one where people are happy, they have enough to share, nobody takes too much, and it's warm and inviting and not too cold, and there's love, and things are right. But the uncontrollable aspect is that the world that they live in now is the opposite of that. It's it is suffering, it is cold, it's lifeless, it's unhappy, and whenever Persephone comes around, they just have that, whenever spring comes around, they have that ability to rejoice and to feel like they're rebelling against their current environment. Yeah, yeah. How about if we shift from Hades Town, which is hopeful, to Rocky Horror, which is a little bit more cynical. I think I, every year, I go and I check out Chapman University's Shadowcast performance of Rocky Horror. And for those of you listeners who are not sure what a Shadowcast is, a Shadowcast is when a group of actors lip syncs and performs in front of the movie that's being projected. And so you are watching the movie, but really what you're watching are the people who are reenacting it in front, the shadows of the film characters. The Rocky Horror Show started as a musical, a stage musical, and then was recorded as a film, really launched Tim Curry's career, of course, and became, wasn't successful 
in the beginning, but then when it started being shown at midnight, people did all kinds of things. So in addition to having shadow casts, they also had callbacks, and then they also had small moments of the carnivalesque. You could spray water when it was raining. You could throw toilet paper whenever anyone said Great Scott for Dr. Scott, and there were all kinds of different things. And it got very rowdy, and it got a little bit, uh, a little bit edgy with the callbacks. The, the movie is already just <laughs> edgy in and of itself, but the callbacks just kind of raised the bar a little bit. So when I go and I watch the shadow cast here at Chapman, what I see is a lot of cosplay, people dressing up either as the characters or in lingerie, especially, I will see some drag and a lot of people in makeup and just kind of trying to emulate the spirit of the show through a demonstration of sexuality that normally they probably would not bring into an evening. And the space of Rocky Horror allows for this. The callbacks are, I would say, like a communal celebration of insider knowledge. If you know what the callback is, okay, for example, one of the callbacks is that the character of Brad asks to use the phone, but they have come to this kind of Transvol Transylvanian castle kind of thing. And whenever Brad asks to use the phone, the community responds with, Avery, would you like to do the honors? Castles don't have phones, idiot. Nice, nice. And so it's this insider knowledge, and there's lots of this. And every, I mean, there's a callback just about every minute. And there are also some sex games that are played before the show in, in the community. This is usually called the Virgin Sacrifice because people who have not seen the movie, people who have not been to Rocky Horror are known as Rocky Virgins. Sometimes when they enter the theater, the, a cast member or a crew member will take a lipstick, a tube of lipstick, and put a V on their forehead for virgin. And then they call all virgins up into the front of the theater, if they're willing. Here at Chapman, it's absolutely consensual. If you're a rocky virgin, you are not required to go down to the front. And they play sex games with the virgins, trying to... For example, read out a name of a sex position and then have the virgins reenact that sex position clothed, but reenact that sex position with one of the cast members and see how close they get to the actual definition. But the movie... So, okay, Rocky Horror, I would say, is almost a rite of passage for people who are in college. And part of that differentiation that I was talking about and that rebellion against what has come before rebellion against i guess you could say uh expected origins or expected behavior based on social origins but the movie itself asks how much transgression is too much dr frankenfurter ends up going well past simple transgression or simple misbehavior he is cruel he is cruel and he is also deadly. And so he has to be contained by the movie because the movie is all about 
these are ways that you can don't dream it, be it, right? What whatever you want, you should make it come through or rose tint my world. Let's be playful. Let's be a little bit naughty. Now I'm drawing from Matilda. Let's be a little bit naughty and see what happens. But Frankenfurter goes too far. And I think in terms of what happens the next day, you clean the makeup off before you go to bed, or maybe you fall asleep and then you clean the makeup off the next morning. You wake up the next day after going to Rocky. Maybe you've got some cool photos but you typically don't have any regrets. But here's a funny story. Sometimes you do need to clean up that hangover. Uh, the Rocky hangover. We'll call it the Rocky hangover. My cousin ran for and was seated on the school board down in South San Diego. And she knew one of the things that she needed to do because she was in multiple shadow casts in Rocky and played a bunch of different characters. One of the things she knew she needed to do was scrub all Rocky photos of herself before she ran for office. And so she scrubbed all of that from the internet and tried to sort of say, this was my Rocky persona and the photos exist and I need to make sure that those photos are not interfering with my chance to help kids as a member of the school board. So that's my experience with Rocky. I designed a Rocky Horror Show, and that was my first exposure to it, was last fall. I designed the scenery for this musical at Cypress College Theater. It was phenomenal. It turned out really well. It sounded so good. And the way that the director, Ryan Hollihan, did the call-outs was he actually had... At some points throughout, he had perform the actors sitting in the audience, too, and they would do the call-outs. Or even when they were on stage, they would do the call-outs, too. And that was Ryan's way of bridging the gap between being on the in-club, you know, with the Rocky Virgins or whoever didn't have all of the call-outs remembered. That was his way of bridging the gap between those who don't know about, who don't know the call-outs or are not confident about it, and still having a way for the audience to be in on the culture and the legacy of this show. And it also made it ten times more funny because so they were hilarious. One of my favorites was um, when they're at the door to the castle and um, it's not Igor. What's his name? Rock, the, the, um, that is Riff Raff. Riff Raff. I, young Frankenstein. I got to mix it up. Um, Riff Raff is, why don't you, and then there's a pause, come inside. But instead, um, it's, why don't you, and the audience says, Fuck off and come inside and then someone and then one other person one of the other actors said better than coming outside there you go it is basically misbehaving during a theater show you're not supposed to talk during a theater show in america you're supposed to stay in your seat and laugh when the actors tell jokes and then clap at the end you know and the the subversion and the misbehavior of the audience is really immersive because this show is also about misbehavior and such. It's just really fun. It's really fun to misbehave. It is fun to misbehave. I want to quickly call out the moment in Peter Pan where they break the fourth wall and Tinkerbell is not doing well. And so 
Peter turns to the audience and says, if you believe in fairies, clap your hands. And that's how Tinkerbell is going to be restored to strength, right? So this was a big deal at this time. Some of Peter Pan was kind of influenced by like the pantomimes of the period in Britain. But I'm sure that kids were like, get to clap? You're asking me to do something? And absolutely, that sort of allowed misbehavior through the callbacks in Rocky or in Rent, um, when Maureen is doing her, the cow jumped over the moon and she says, moo with me, moo with me. And the audience just goes, moo. And Maureen tries to get them to be louder and louder and louder. And this is sort of her performance art to try and help the people who are unhoused because rents are too high and it's it's a whole thing but yeah the theater and the historical moments when it has been when misbehavior or speaking when you are supposed to be quiet is allowed there's some very sort of specific moments in the theater where that has kind of happened mm. and i know that you went and saw a show that has to do with rebellion too. Yeah, I went to Darcel 15 Showplace in Portland, Oregon this weekend. Apparently, it's one of the oldest drag clubs in the world and they're they've been celebrating their 56th year anniversary and last uh, last month they hosted a dragathon which was the longest drag show in the world at about 48 hours plus and you know definitely hit the Guinness World Records and stuff like that and they raised money for the Trevor Project and they had sold out tickets and 48 hours of performances and audiences and songs and sparkles and stuff and the sensory experience of seeing this drag show last Saturday was really wonderful. It was sparkly. It was sequins and discos and shinies and stars. There were actual star, like star-shaped lights around the stage, and it was really hypnotizing. And the the queens felt kind of like goddesses, the way that the audience was kind of collectively worshipping them and the interactive parts of oh we can go we we can leave our seats and walk up to the stage and hand them dollars or we can put it in the bowl and stuff um we get to we get to look up at this queen this elaborately dressed human who is currently beyond human because of their colors and their makeup and their hair and their costumes we get to look up at them and we get to share a moment of eye contact they get to wink at us they get to smile at us they get to dance at us they get to touch our arm and flirt with us they get to do all that and we are we get to we get to be the subject of that attention too um we get to shout and clap and and yellow long and just we get to believe in this illusion and this performance um in terms of this illusion of gender as a performance with us as an audience member having the knowledge that drag queen is somebody who is performing the role of a woman or a drag king is someone who's performing the role of a man 
in in the, this elaborate fantastical way that we get to worship them as well at the same time we get to say yes you are a stunning woman you are so cool you are hot you are a wonderful you know artist you're you're all these things and believing in this um this performance in this play that they're putting on and there was also a lot of vulnerability too and sometimes very literal vulnerability because during you know sometimes they would be scantily clad at times and and reveal themselves they would transform on stage they would remove one piece of clothing to show another clothing and the audience would go wild because whoa we didn't expect that they're they're taking off their clothes in 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 here this is so this is so naughty and i love it and we get to be into it and they're consenting to be into this too and worship 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 just that nakedness and that vulnerability it was at times emotional too for me as a person of the queer community to see people to see these queens living their best lives in this one moment that we get to share together and even even beforehand too before the show started, some of the drag queens walked around and were exchanging change, actually. They were like, hey, does anybody need change? And they were just, like, holding money. And, you know, a bunch of people exchanged bigger bills for smaller dollars. And it reminded me of the concept of monopoly money. Here's some monopoly money for you to interact in this game. Because it's not about anymore. It's not anymore about the monetary value of the dollar. It's about the emotional, immersive journey of that dollar. It's the experience of that dollar, and it's the experience of you being part of the show and you interacting and you having that up close interaction with these beautiful women, quote unquote women, quote 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 whatever. You know, <laughs> it's. It's immersive and there's not even a need for a mic pack because they're not they're not usually singing too. And so even though they're lip syncing with many of the songs and when you go up close, you don't hear their voice because you know they're they're lip syncing. There is that moment of, oh right, this is not exactly real, but I'm gonna laugh along and I'm gonna I'm gonna enjoy this to the end of the show. Like the even the money givers are also quote unquote in character too um and the fact that a lot of the men of course were very trying to uh, and joe from earlier he did make a lot of us uncomfortable though because he was trying to like get their get the performers attentions more and he was trying to touch them more which we we're like wow like i was just like oh just just let stop you don't this there's a line right there's a line between you handing the money and them performing at you versus you doing something that is uncomfortable or non-consensual or mean or out of bounds right there is something that's out of bounds and the fact that 90 percent of the audience was drunk af blurred those lines even more because now they had permission to be out of bounds in more ways than one but at the same time security is vital you gotta you gotta be safe you gotta keep the performers safe you have to 
play along with the rules of this space at the same time. <laughs> okay, and then one more thing about the interactivity too was that at the beginning, Poison Waters was also asking about the audience too. Is that like when they walked us to our seats, um, they would ask like, "Oh, whose birthday is it?" and "Whose bachelorette?" and "Oh, yeah, I was here for my sister's bachelorette." And fortunately, she was the only bride in the audience, so you know she got to hug that spotlight. But um, uh, at the beginning, Poison Waters would ask, like, oh, it's your birthday. Who are you here with? And kind of, like, roast the audience also. And that was great. Um, and kind of ask about, like, my sister. And, like, who are you here with? And uh, my sister said, yeah, we're from all over. We got California and Hawaii, New York, Illinois. And then Poison Waters was like, Illinois? Wow, you didn't even say Chicago. So you know they're in the middle of nowhere. And I'm wow exactly i yeah i they are called out and i loved it <laughs> queens queens are sharp yeah. they know kind of yeah how to needle people they know oh okay and a lot of wit a lot of wit great improv skills absolutely i guess we should also come back to when does this kind of rebellious play or misbehaving play have ties to the real world? When is there something, when is there a change? When is there a transformation? Sometimes in the theater we talk about transportation versus transformation. So transformation, you go, you have a wonderful time and you remember it as a wonderful time. It doesn't really change your sense of self, your sense of self in society, your, self, your sense of society as kind of a construction with a bunch of rules. So when when does this naughty performance, misbehavior, rebellion, when does it actually make a difference in the real world? Avery, have you had an experience where something has stuck with you? Souvenirs. Taking home souvenirs is probably what I would say in regards to how we bring play home with us. G growing up, kids often save movie stub tickets or concert wristbands. That ridiculous paper blue thing around your wrist that you had on you during that whole night at the concert and then you finally take it off at home and you have that moment of, oh wait, I don't really want to throw this away because this is sentimental. There's something sentimental about taking things home with you and how it's it's evidence of and a reminder that you had a moment of something you had a moment of joy you had connection something memorable something that tickled your senses somehow and maybe if you look at that object again you could make believe again that you're in that moment you can incorporate whatever the heck you want now into the rest of your life when we when we make believe uh when, when we make belief day to day like today i am a loyal hard-working nine-to-five worker and i'm gonna make sure that my boss knows that so they don't fire me but at the same time maybe bringing some attitudes from your playtime into the workspace or into the rest of your life can be really valuable because let's say you saw Hades Town and you were really moved by the way 
that Persephone stood up for herself in the face of her lover, or the way that Orpheus was able to stand up for other people. Witnessing and interacting with these situations where you're seeing change and transformation happen in front of you makes you believe in real life that you can change and transform in real life too. And you can you can change and transform other people as well, realizing that you have the power to do that and create the very social realities that you want to try to enact. And when you are in when you are in, you know, a drag venue or when you're in a theater or a playground, you can kind of you can tell exactly what is real and what's not. But when you bring it to the real life, you can start to realize that <laughs> there's not really a line between what's real and what's not real and that you have agency and that you have power to change that. And yeah, and there's a there's a quote here from um, Jane McGonagall from their book Realities Broken and it reads the real world just doesn't offer up as easily the carefully designed pleasures, the thrilling challenges, and the powerful social bonding afforded by virtual or play environments. Reality doesn't motivate us as effectively. Reality isn't engineered to maximize our potential, and reality wasn't designed from the bottom up to make us happy. However, you know, and then, and, end quote. However, what was designed from the bottom up to make us happy is play. Absolutely. You said just a, a minute ago you talked about playgrounds, and I kind of love that idea. I kind of love that we think of playgrounds as this place where children go to play, where they have slides and swings and all kinds of other things. And life, I think, play in life becomes a little bit like an extensive playground or maybe play as parkour, you know? The whole world becomes a place where we can play and play for a specific reason. I think it's clear that play can call us, has the power to call us, to question who is in charge of us, how we deal with that, what the systems are in our lives. And we talked certainly about when rebellious play or misbehavior might cross a line. And we all, I think, have seen when it crosses into unethical behavior or abusive behavior. So Greg Bateson and Richard Schechner call this a nip becoming a bite. When a cat or a dog wants to play, they will nip you. They'll give you a kind of soft bite that says, hey, come and play with me right now. But when a dog or a cat wants to tell you, I am not playing right now, this is serious, they will bite. And that bite is designed to take you out of the realm of play and into the realm of stop that, or you need to treat me differently, or something along those lines. So I was thinking in, in real life, when does a nip become a bite? When does play become something that is unethical or abusive? And I think of the January 6th 
riots at the Capitol, where people who were dressed up, where people who were there to make noise, to support former President Donald Trump came out and were gathered together, it quickly did become unethical and abusive and, in fact, deadly. The nip became a bite. That was, that boundary was crossed. Hazing in Greek life. Here I am, a professor, and I see Greek life and how Greek life elevates experiences for some students and then also can be, in some cases, uh, un unhelpful or even um, sad or upsetting to some students. Hazing clearly is play that gets out of control and ends up crossing that boundary. So I think that one of the things before we go out, here's my soapbox moment. Yes. Avery, you ready? Here's my soapbox moment. Before we go out to play, before we go out to play in ways that are calling for change, that are asking people to reconsider, I think we need to start with ourselves. I think we need to prepare for rebellion by looking within. And I have another Thoreau quote here. I'm on a Thoreau kick right now. And I have another quote. So here's where I am going to end. And that is, Thoreau says, we are all sculptors and painters, and our material is our own flesh and blood and bones. Any nobleness begins at once to refine a man's features, any meanness or sensuality to imbrute them. And so we need to take care with self-construction before we go out to reconstruct others or to reconstruct society so that's where i'm going to end my comments and avery over to you to finish up from hadestown let the world we dream about be the one we live in now reflect on the world around you and make it more just in the small and big ways that you can find the power that play can provide you because if you look it's always going to be available. All right, everybody, that's it for this episode. This has been Avery and Drew on Powered by Play. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you can support us online at Coffee. That is ko-fi.com slash powered by play. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.